We'll hear argument first today in case 05-1629, Gonzalez versus Duenas Alvarez. Mr. Himmelfarb. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. The Ninth Circuit held that the term theft offense, an aggravated felony under the Immigration and Nationality Act, does not include aiding and abetting. That holding is incorrect. Indeed, it is so clearly incorrect that even respondent does not defend it. Respondent's aiding and abetting argument is that his violation of the California Vehicle Theft Statute is not a theft offense under the INA, not because the California statute covers aiding and abetting and the, and the theft offense does not, as the Ninth Circuit held, but because the California statute covers a certain kind of aiding and abetting, so-called natural and probable consequences rule, and a theft offense does not. That theory is slightly narrower than the Ninth Circuit's, but it is mistaken for many of the same reasons. One of the reasons that the Ninth Circuit's holding is mistaken is that it would drastically limit the number of aliens who could be treated as aggravated felons based on a conviction obtained in any jurisdiction, because no jurisdiction distinguishes between principals and aiders and abettors, and it is ordinarily not possible to prove that an alien in a particular case was not convicted as an aider and abetter. Respondent's theory would have the same effect when a conviction was obtained in any jurisdiction that obtains the natural and probable consequences rule. Will you help me out on one mechanical point? Uh, as, as you probably know from your brief, I don't come from a jurisdiction that, that uses this rule, and I'm just not used to it. I had thought, and I guess I'm wrong, that if the natural and probable consequences theory we use to prove, let's say, ultimately the, the offense of assault in what started out as a theft case, that there would have to be a separate charge of assault, but that the theory of proof would be the natural and consequences extension of aiding and abetting so that there would at least be on the record uh, a, uh, a charge of assault. And I take it that's not the case. I, I don't think it is Otherwise, the case. we wouldn't have this problem. Well, it, it is the case that the aider and abetter has to intend to aid and abet what is sometimes called the target crime. And it also has to be the case that the principal has to then go on to commit some other crime, a subsequent crime. The issue then arises whether the aider and abetter who intended to assist the target crime is held liable for the subsequent crime. But in any case, in my example of, of, of theft uh, and, and the further offense under natural and probable consequences being assault, the only charge against the, the, de, the, the defendant who aided and abetted would be a charge of theft. Is that correct? It, it could be. It could be. But in the course of proving the aider and abetter guilty of the subsequent crime on this natural and probable consequences theory, there would have to be proof that bore upon the target crime to show what his intent was with respect to the target crime and also whether the subsequent crime was a foreseeable consequence right. of the initial I don't understand. How can he be convicted of, of the consequential crime if he is never charged with the consequential crime? You charge him with the, with the theft and convict him of assault? No, Justice Scalia. He would have to be charged with the subsequent crime. Okay. Well, I thought you, I thought you answered. Me too. I didn't, I didn't mean to say that. I meant to say he didn't have to be charged with the initial crime. Oh. In fact, even the principal wouldn't have to be charged with the initial crime or, for that matter, any crime. 
The aider and abetter could be charged only with a consequent crime, but in the course of proving that under a natural and probable consequences rule, there would have to be proof with respect to the target crime because the elements of the natural and probable consequences rule depend upon what happens. The theory being that any, anybody who, who uh, intended to aid and abet a crime which naturally leads to another crime intended the other crime as well. That's, that's the basic principle. Mr. Hillbob, does the government urge that we consider, consider the point that you're now arguing and the other points? You started out by saying everyone agrees that the rationale of the Ninth Circuit won't wash. If we go beyond that, then we are deciding a question as a matter of first view instead of review. Does the government urge that we dispose of those issues anyway, even though they were not disposed of by the Ninth Circuit? We think that the aiding and abetting argument that respondent raises is fairly included within the question presented and that it should be resolved. We don't think the other two issues are fairly included within the question presented. We think that this issue is fairly presented within the fairly included within the question presented and should resolve. But it wasn't discussed by the Ninth Circuit, was it? It it wasn't, Justice Ginsburg, but it bears upon the question of what it means to say that an aggravated felony encompasses aiding and abetting. If the Court simply holds, contrary to the Ninth Circuit's holding, that aiding and abetting is included in an aggravated felony, it will leave open a very important question which we think the Court should provide guidance to the lower courts on. It would leave open the question whether that means that there is some general federal immigration law definition of aiding and abetting with which the law of aiding and abetting in the jurisdiction of conviction would have to be compared in every single removal case, at least potentially, or rather, as we would submit, that Congress intended to cover the entire range of aiding and abetting under whatever formulation was used in any jurisdiction at the time the aiding and abetting provision was added to the Immigration and Nationality Act. And, and what about the remaining questions that were not uh, uh, not decided by the Ninth Circuit? Well, certainly the Do we remand for those or what? Yes, the, it, it's it's open to the it would be open to the Ninth Circuit, assuming the Ninth Circuit were of the view that they were fairly raised in the Ninth Circuit and also that they were fairly raised in the agency, it would be open to the Ninth Circuit to resolve those questions in the first instance. Let me just add. Why would it have to be raised in the Ninth Circuit? I thought this case was controlled by a prior decision of the Ninth Circuit. Therefore, there was nothing more that was needed to take care of this case. That's true. The Ninth Circuit didn't pass upon any issue except the question whether aiding and abetting as a general matter is included in the theft offense, relying on a prior decision that held that it wasn't and sent the case back to the Board of Immigration Appeals. But I think it would still be fair for the government to argue that a particular theory that may be raised here in defense of the judgment wasn't properly raised either in the Ninth Circuit by respondent or before the agency such that that claim was not properly exhausted. Mr. Himmelfarb, you, 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 you point out that, that these, these last two issues are not, and probably correctly, that they're not fairly included within the question presented. 
Well, that would be disabling if, indeed, it was the petitioner that is seeking to raise those two additional issues. But here it is, it, it, it is the respondent, and, and uh, we, we can certainly reach those issues if we want to. Of course, of course. So the respondent can, can seek to uphold the, the judgment below on whatever grounds he wishes. Of course. It's so we can reach those other issues if we wish. It's ultimately a matter of the Court's discretion. Our submission is that the wiser exercise of the Court's discretion would, not to, would be not to address the issue, particularly the, the last issue raised in respondent's brief. Well, the only thing that the Ninth Circuit held was that the uh, definition of a theft offense uh, uh, in California is broader than the generic definition of theft. All of these arguments that are, are being discussed are ways in which uh, that particular ruling is supported. I don't know why they wouldn't be considered uh, subsumed under the Ninth Circuit's decision. Well, Mr. Chief Justice, we don't read the Ninth Circuit's order that way. We think the Ninth Circuit simply reversed on the strength of its prior decision in Panulier. And in Panulier, the Ninth Circuit clearly held that the reason that this California statute was not a theft offense was that conviction under it is possible under an aiding and abetting liability theory. So insofar as the order relied on Panulier, it was saying nothing more and nothing less than that respondent's conviction was not a theft offense because it is theoretically possible he was convicted as an aider and abetter, and the definition of theft offense under the INA does not include aiding and abetting. Now, as I was saying, I think it's important for the Court to make clear what it means to say that aiding and abetting is included in the aggravated felony definition. And this, the type of argument that respondent raises here, I think it's important to keep in mind, is not limited to the particular aspect of aiding and abetting law on which he relies. There are a great many different formulations of the basic requirements of aiding and abetting, not only that, that vary not only from jurisdiction to jurisdiction, but even within jurisdictions. So in the next case, you could imagine a, an alien in a removal case arguing that because some other requirement of aiding and abetting law in the jurisdiction in which he was convicted is broader than the more typical form, formulation, that even though he was clearly convicted of, for example, murder, and even though the elements of murder in that jurisdiction perfectly match up with the federal definition of murder in the immigration statute. Counsel, um, you're ahead of me, and I'm still back on the last question, but I take it your, your rationale for not reaching these other grounds would also apply to your argument that whatever the categorical definition that this uh, defendant was convicted of an actual theft offense, looking at the charging documents. That wasn't a basis for the Ninth Circuit's decision either. That's true, Mr. Chief Justice. Our, our main submission is that the Ninth Circuit relied on an issue of aiding and abetting. We petitioned on that question. The Court granted certiorari on that question. The, the three grounds on which respondent relies on defense of the judgment, even though they all vary in some sense from the Ninth Circuit's ground, Two of them simply have nothing to do with aiding and abetting. The first ground is an aiding and abetting argument. It's slightly different from the one, slightly narrower than the one on which the Ninth Circuit relied, but we think it's fairly included and we think the Court should address it, and we think the Court should reject it for the reasons I'm attempting to articulate now. If you have a jurisdiction where the law of aiding and abetting 
is broader, can be characterized as broader in some sense than what might be thought to be the general notion of aiding and abetting. Under the premise of respondent's theory, you could conceivably have this kind of argument in any removal case what involving if a particular, <clears throat> What if a particular jurisdiction has an entirely novel and fundamentally different uh, theory of aiding and abetting? Is it, is it simply sufficient that it's labeled aiding and abetting? Well, Justice Alito, we think it would be perfectly appropriate for the Court to leave open the question that if at some point in the future some entirely novel, radical, far-reaching theory of aiding and abetting were adopted, that would not be sufficient. I don't think, as the law currently stands, there is any such theory um, in any jurisdiction. And I think that Congress should be presumed, when it enacted the aggravated felony provision, to be covering the field of possibilities. But if at some point in the future some jurisdiction decided that you know, somebody could be strictly liable. Mr. Himlock, what about the accessory after the fact? Is, do your, your comments apply to that argument as well? Well, we think that that's not fairly included within the question presented. We think that's just a separate — accessory after the fact no, is a separate crime. No, it's fairly included, but as, as you've acknowledged, it, it is an argument that's asserted to defend the judgment. That's right. We think — we think that the Court could resolve — um, that issue along the lines we've suggested in our reply brief. Respondents' basic submission on that point is that the term, <clears throat> the phrase in the California statute, any person who is a party or an accessory to or an accomplice in the driving or unauthorized taking or stealing, that in that phrase the term accessory means accessory after the fact, An accessory after the fact is not included within the definition of a theft offense. Therefore, the California statute is broader than a theft offense. It's our submission that the Court can assume that he's right about that, but still rule for the government on the accessory after the fact issue, because whatever the statute might say, he was charged as a principal. And the law is clear that somebody charged as a principal. How do we know that? I was looking at, what is it, 13A? How do we know that that charges him as a principal in the, in the appendix to the petition? Well, Justice Ginsburg, it tracks the language of the statute up to the point where the statute uses the phrase I just read. So it's principal language. It's theoretically possible that he was convicted as an aider and a better because the law in California, as it is elsewhere, is that somebody charged as a principal can be convicted as an aider and a better. But the law in California, as it is elsewhere, is that somebody charged as a principal cannot be convicted as an accessory after the fact. There's no language in the charging instrument to suggest that respondent was charged as an accessory after the fact. To accept your your answer, we've got to look into a question of California pleading law, which hasn't been passed on below, haven't we? Well, that's right. Respondent raises a number of arguments um, in response, essentially, to the argument I just made. We think they're, they're all entirely insubstantial and could be rejected quite easily, but it, it may well be that the Court would think that it, the better course is not to address the accessory after the fact issue. Why wouldn't the better course be uh, also not to uh, decide the principal question you want us to decide on the broad ground that you want us uh, to take, which is that if there are minor 
differences between what you might call the general law of aiding and abetting, it doesn't matter. Uh, why, why wouldn't it be wiser to decide this on, on the simple ground that uh, this kind of uh, consequential liability is part of the general law of uh, aiding and abetting? which you argue in your brief. We do, Justice Scalia. So that, that would be the narrower ground. We that would, just that say- would be a narrower ground. That, that is certainly our fallback provision, and we would not be at all unhappy if the case were resolved on that ground. Even though that, that position has been widely criticized, I think, is it the ALI Model Penal Code thinks it's a bad rule? The, the, there has been some criticism of the rule, Justice Ginsburg, but it is applied in criminal cases in federal courts. And whatever criticism there might be in the academic literature or even in some state decisions, we think it is just inconceivable that Congress would have intended that somebody could be convicted under this theory under the federal criminal law and be subject to the same criminal penalties as a principal, and yet under the federal immigration law could not be subject to the same immigration consequences as a principal. So whatever grounds there are for criticizing it, it is the law in most places, and most importantly, we think, it is the law in federal courts. Um, Taking account of minor variations in formulation of aiding and abetting standards among jurisdictions would not only have the consequence of drastically limiting the number of aliens who could be found to be aggravated felons because of the difficulty of establishing that somebody was convicted as a principal rather than an aider and better, it would also complicate removal cases enormously. As I mentioned, the premise of respondents aiding and abetting theory would suggest that in any case, it would be necessary for the immigration judge, the Board of Immigration Appeals and the reviewing court, to engage not only in an analysis of whether the principal offense of conviction matches some federal definition, which itself can be a quite complex enterprise, but having done that, it would then have to go on and compare the aiding and abetting law of the state of conviction with some federal aiding and abetting law. In that former question as to whether uh, whether uh, California theft is uh, is general theft, do you propose the same, the same rule, that even if California has some minor variations, not just in aiding and abetting, but in what constitutes theft, minor variations from what the, uh, what the general uh, national rule is, they should be disregarded? And no. if not, why not? Well, we think there — we don't, first of all. And I think no court would, would say that, and we certainly wouldn't. But there's a very important difference insofar as that type of comparison is concerned between, on the one hand, a principal offense and, on the other hand, aiding and abetting. The two important differences are, if you have a general definition of the principal offense, whether it's a theft offense or burglary, any reasonable framework would contemplate that in a great many cases you would be able to tell whether the alien before the court was convicted of that offense, of the federal definition of that offense, simply by looking at the state statute of conviction. And if it matches it, that's the end of the analysis. If it's broader, in most cases, you'd be able to look at the charging instrument and see whether that person was charged with something narrower than the whole range of conduct that's covered by the statute. 
Under respondent's theory, if you were to apply that same approach to aiding and abetting, you would never be able to look at the statute to see whether somebody was convicted under an aiding and abetting theory that matches the federal definition, because every statute includes aiding and abetting. So it's impossible to tell from the statute whether somebody was convicted as a principal or an aider and abetter. Then if you look at the charging instrument, that won't suffice either, because the law everywhere, as far as I'm aware, is that somebody charged as a principal can be convicted as an aider and abetter. So the only cases in which you'd be able to establish that somebody was not convicted as an aider and abetter are the unusual case where there happens to be something in the files of the criminal case that will explain in some admissible fashion whether the defendant was convicted as a principal or an aider and abetter. That's the first important distinction. The second so, — So you would limit your rule just to aiding and abetting and not to other minor variations, just minor variations in the aiding and abetting uh, uh, definition? That's right. I mean, our submission is that Congress's intent in enacting an aggravated felony provision that captures aiders and abettors was that minor variations in formulations wouldn't matter for the reasons I'm giving. So it's ultimately a matter of congressional intent. The second reason why this is important is because if you were to apply that rule to aiding and abetting, you would be saying, in effect, that in any jurisdiction that applies a broader rule of aiding and abetting, every single crime in the criminal code would not qualify for aggravated felony status because an aiding and abetting statute runs with the entirety of the criminal code and is a potential theory of liability for every substantive criminal offense. So that would mean that in those, narrow, those broader aiding and abetting jurisdictions, nothing could ever be an aggravated felony unless the government could somehow search through the criminal files and find something to prove that, in fact, the defendant was not convicted under an aiding and abetting theory. Mr. Himmelfarb, before your time runs out, there's something curious about the California statutes. This one is in the motor vehicle the code, and there's a, there's a defense in the penal code called car theft. Uh, do you know what's the difference between those two and what would move a prosecutor to charge under the penal code as opposed to the vehicle code? Well, the, the theft offense that covers cars other than this one in California that I'm aware of, Justice Ginsburg, is just the grand, a grand theft statute, um, <clears throat> which is just general theft as applied to particular circumstances, one of which is the theft of a car. And now, as I un- mentioned in, what, 487D. That's right. That's right. And as I understand it, that is essentially a larceny statute, which encompasses the common law larceny rule, which is that there has to be an intent to steal, uh, or stated differently, that there has to be an intent to deprive the owner of the car of the car permanently, whereas the California vehicle theft statute at issue here is a broader statute in that it doesn't require an intent to steal. It doesn't even require a taking. A driving is sufficient, so it would capture the receipt of stolen property. And it doesn't require an intent to deprive the owner of the car permanently, um, it would be sufficient if there was an intent to deprive the owner of the car temporarily. It covers joyriding. Well, it would cover, it would cover what is colloquially, colloquially known as joyriding if it fell within the terms of the statute. That is, if there was an intent to deprive the owner of the property. 
And on the subject of joyriding, let me — Temporarily. At least temporarily. Uh, uh, Respondent makes much of the fact that um, on on our reading of the statute, um, on on our understanding that a theft offense would cover the California vehicle theft statute at issue here, that would mean that joyriding would be included. But I think it's critical to keep in mind that there are two very important limitations in the uh, federal definition of theft offense. The first is that, as interpreted by the Board of Immigration Appeals, it does require an intent to deprive the owner of property. And a great many unauthorized use of vehicle statutes in the states don't have that element. That's one important limitation. The other is that many of these statutes are misdemeanor statutes. So somebody convicted of it would not be sentenced to more than a year in prison. And by the terms of the theft offense provision of the aggravated felony provision in the INA, you have to have been sentenced to at least a year in prison in order to be treated as an aggravated felon. So we think the vast majority of what is colloquially known as joyriding cases would not fall within this particular aggravated felony. But in felony. California they would, or is there a separate joyriding? No. Joyriding joy in California would be prosecuted under this statute, but unless there was an intent to deprive, there could be no conviction. And unless the the sentence was at least a year, it would not be treated as an aggravated felony. Is is the sentence given or the sentence prescribed for the The sentence given, Justice Scalia. I'd like to reserve the remainder of my time. Thank you, Mr. Himmelfarb. Mr. Mead. Mr. Chief Justice. And may it please the Court. I would like to pick up on the point made by Justice Ginsburg. This case does not involve a conviction under California's car theft statute, which is Penal Code 487D, which requires an intent to steal. Rather, it involves a conviction under California's vehicle code, which covers varied and less serious conduct, including liability with or without intent to steal, and also expressly reaching accessories after the fact, which the government concedes would make it broader than the generic definition of theft. The question is whether a conviction under this statute is a theft offense and therefore an aggravated felony, triggering the extremely serious consequences of automatic deportation from the United States, a permanent bar from the United States, and in the sentencing context, a sentencing enhancement from 2 to 20 years for illegal reentry. Your, your friend began his argument by saying that you don't defend the decision of the Ninth Circuit below on aiding and abetting. Is that correct? We do defend uh, the judgment of the Ninth Circuit. I know the judgment, but uh, you focused at least primarily on other grounds than the one on which the Ninth Circuit relied. Is, is he correct that you concede that merely because the statute extends to aiders and abettors, that is not sufficient to take it out of the categorical treatment? As an abstract general matter, divorced from the facts of this case and divorced from California law, we agree that aiding and abetting liability is part of a generic definition of any crime, including a theft offense here. However, that's not what the Ninth Circuit stated in either this case or in Penulior. In Penulior, the Ninth Circuit stressed the extremely broad nature of California aiding and abetting liability 
It cited a case, People v. Beeman, which refers to the specific natural and probable consequences doctrine under California law. So the Ninth Circuit was talking about this, the broad sweep of aiding and abetting liability under California law. And I disagree Can with I you. Can I ask a, sure. a factual question? I'm just curious. If, if the government's statement of the facts here is correct, your client, a Peruvian, uh, was convicted of burglary in 1992 and convicted of possession of a firearm by a felon in 1994 and nonetheless was, was made a lawful permanent resident in 1998. How does that happen? Is that a mistake or, or? I'm not or sure. How do we decide who, who, who's admitted as a lawful permanent resident? I don't know the answer to the question, except for to state that those two, those convictions did happen in the years that you state, and he did become a lawful permanent resident in 1998. Uh, I believe it was through a waiver provision under the INA, but that's how he became uh, a lawful permanent resident. He's not a joyrider anyway. Um, I would disagree with that. All we know in this case from the record is that he was not charged with 487D car theft, which requires an intent to steal. And he was rather charged under a conviction which covers joyriding. In my reading of the government's brief, the government doesn't contest that joyriding would put a statute outside the generic definition of theft offense. Even in the government's presentation today, the government suggested that in most states, joyriding would be outside the generic definition of theft. So then the Ninth Circuit was wrong, in your opinion, when it defined generic theft as the taking or exercise of control over property without consent, with the intent to deprive the owner of rights and benefits, even if it is less than permanent or total. They're wrong, in your opinion. No, I don't think they're wrong. Well, then I don't see how you make sure. It. I'd be happy. Isn't that inconsistent with what no. you just said? Why not? No, it's not inconsistent. We don't take the position that a permanent deprivation is required. Is required. A, a less than permanent is sufficient, as the Ninth Circuit uh, stated in the Corona Sanchez. The Ninth Circuit has subsequently held that a joyriding offense is outside that definition because it includes a brief taking with an intent to return. And um, the last footnote of the government's brief, note 8, cites that Ninth Circuit case. I don't understand how that could be right, though. I mean, when you joyride, you, it's less than permanent. In other words, their definition is if you take uh, somebody else's property uh, for an hour, that that isn't theft. But if you take it for a day, it is. The question has to, to do with how long of the taking. And at common law, they're trying to. They're trying. Is there a common law? Because they're trying to report. Uh, is, is under the common law there a rule or any generic rule that says there, if there, you take somebody else's property for a couple of hours, it is th- not theft. But if you take it for several hours or several days, it is theft. There is a generic rule on this, and there is a consensus among the vast majority of states. I would p- point you both to Professor Lefebvre as well as to the Model Penal Code. And what it, these rules say, and this is true in the vast majority of states, 42 states uh, by our count, that if you take either permanently or for an unreasonable amount of time such that you would deprive the owner of a significant portion of the economic value, then you, 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 that constitutes a theft offense. You shouldn't steal it for an unreasonable it. amount of time, just for a reasonable amount of time. <laughs> Excuse me? <laughs> I don't understand the concept of stealing something for a reasonable amount of time. 
Well, I mean, that goes to the exact point, Justice Scalia, because we're not well, — the question is, what is stealing? The question is — then this, that the rule is something is theft only if you take it long enough to deprive an owner of a significant portion of its value. Or a reasonable time, or to play — No, 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 wait. I want to know where that comes from. Because I would think I have a Volvo. It lasts for about 30 years, apparently. So I guess if you took my car for a year, that that then would not be a — or maybe it would be. Where, where is the, the source of the rule you just cite? The source is the generic definition as applied in all of the states. No, no, I want a book. I mean, I want a book or a, that, that will tell me that if they take my car for a month, it isn't theft, but if they take it for a year, it is. What, what book or, or, you know, where, where do I look to verify that this is uh, common law? I'm not denying what you're saying. I just want to know where to look. Sure. Two sources. One would be Professor Lefebvre in his uh, discussion of what the intent required for the different theft offenses. And the second source would be the Model Penal Code when it sets forth the requisite mens rea for theft offenses. That was the third reference to the Model Penal Code, so I have to ask. No, no one's enacted the Model Penal Code, have they? Um, no, but in Taylor and in Scheidler, this Court used the Model Penal Code as a shorthand for the generic definition of a certain crime. But we don't rely on the Model Is, Penal Code. Would you code. describe the Model Penal Code as closer to a restatement or aspirational in terms of its reflection of the existence of general law? I would say that the Model Penal Code is consistent with the majority view. On this question of intent to steal, as we set forth in our brief, 42 states hold what, what we say the law is, that an intent to steal a theft offense requires a mens rea more than taking with an intent to give back. You assert, you assert it's consistent with the majority view on this issue, not, not on everything. What does it say about the death penalty? I'm not sure what it says about the death penalty on this issue. Do you understand? You've you said intent to return. Is that what joyriding is, that the, when you're done with your joyride, you return the car? Where you picked it up? I thought they just aban you abandoned it wherever you happen to be. If you abandon a car wherever you happen to be, that's not joyriding. That's covered by traditional larceny principles. And the, the case of State v. Davis from 1875 involves that exact principle. That is larceny in that case. But, however, if someone takes a car, uh, a teenager, a neighbor, takes a car, drives it around the block, brings it back to the same place, that is joyriding. That is covered by 10851. What's the joy in that? The joy apparently is you don't get convicted of theft. <laughs> but, but what we have here is a statute that criminalizes conduct less serious than car theft. Cal this is 10851 is the only statute in California that covers. Joyriding. There's a whole different provision that deals with car theft. In cases where that's the appropriate charge, prosecutors will charge the person with car theft and meet the burden of proof. Here we're dealing with a less serious crime, a less serious statute, and the question is whether this statute that requires a very minimal mens rea with or without intent to steal is sufficient to lead to the very serious consequences of being an aggravated felon. Do you understand that point to be what the Ninth Circuit relied on? No, absolutely not. The Ninth Circuit didn't rely on that. It was presented to the Ninth Circuit, but the Ninth Circuit did not rely on that. So we, if, we, if we decided on the question, the aiding and abetting question they did decide, this would be available to you to argue on remand? Uh, yes. Because you presented it to the Ninth Circuit below? Yes, it would. 
I would like to also address the question of accessory liability under California law. 10851 expressly covers accessories. The government concedes that if that term means accessory after the fact, then this statute is outside the generic definition of a theft offense. Under California law, accessory has only one meaning, and that one meaning is accessory after the fact. On that ground alone, this statute is broader than the generic definition of theft offense, and it would provide a, an alternate ground of affirmance in this case. Mr. Me, the, the government said that definition holds for penal code offenses, but it's not altogether clear that a definition in the penal code would carry over to the vehicle code. I have two responses, Justice Ginsburg. First, there's a similar provision to 10851 covering the taking or operating of an airplane. It's in the penal code. It's 499 little d. It exactly mirrors the language of 10851. So presumably the government would agree that the definition of accessory under California law and the penal code would cover 499D for the same reasons it would cover under 10851. Moreover, accessory under California law only has one meaning. In 1872, the California legislature passed the provision at issue, Section 32, and says accessory is defined to be accessory after the fact. At the same time, the legislature passed other provisions which also use accessory in that consistent way. The California Supreme Court, as early as 1898, stated that accessory means accessory after the fact, and relatedly, accessory before the fact, the only other plausible meaning of the term, has no meaning under California law. So with all due respect to the government, accessory in 10851 means accessory after the fact, and that alone makes it broader than the generic definition of theft of theft. Wouldn't it be odd for this Court to decide that issue of California law? I wouldn't think it would be odd, Justice Alito, because it's so clear. It's, it has to do with a statutory term. It has to do with a statutory term that's defined under the California statute. Moreover, under a Taylor inquiry, federal courts are often required to look at state law to figure out whether a particular provision is within or outside the generic definition of a crime. Of course, if you're right about this, it would mean the statute is broader, and, but it would still be available to uh, uh, find out whether your client was, in fact, convicted as an accessory or as a principal. That's correct, Your Honor. Now, is that, is, that, is that possible or is that out of the question in this case? I'm sorry, is, is what possible? Is it possible from uh, pleading documents, from uh, uh, the charge, uh, to determine uh, uh, whether he was convicted as an accessory or not? And if it's clear that he wasn't, then we're just wasting our time in, in arguing this point, aren't we? Um, I, I disagree, because uh, as an initial matter, this case, in our view, is about the categorical approach. But as to your question about what these documents show, no, the documents in this case do not show that he was an accessory after the fact or a principal, but the government has failed to meet its burden one way or the other. Well, they say you cannot be convicted as an accessory unless you're charged as such and that the documents show he was charged as a principal. 
We disagree with that characterization of the government. As we set forth in our brief, California law does not require someone to be charged uh, with that specific level of specificity. Um, and that's something we set forth in our brief. Moreover, well, how about how the, how the defendant was charged in this very case? Uh, Mr. Himmelbob thought that, that it was plain from that charge that's on 13A that he was charged as a principal. And you must take the view that this charge, this information, was inadequate to identify him as a principal. This charge is ambiguous as to whether he was charged as a driver and taker as the principal or as an accessory after the fact. No, no, no. It says who at the time and place last aforesaid did willfully and unlawfully drive or take a vehicle. I mean, he's, uh, he's charged with being the person who took the vehicle, not not uh, some subsequent uh, accessory. Well, this is a question of California law. Not a question of California. It's a question of English. No, I, I disagree, Your Honor. I mean, it's a, it's a question of California law. What needs to be charged in a California charging document? We're not saying about what needs to be charged. We're talking about what was charged. And it seems to me there's no question what was charged is that he did willfully and unlawfully drive or take a vehicle. There's no way you can consider that an accessory. Well, I, I disagree, because under California law, you need to charge generally under the statute. And the statute says drive or take. That's how he's charged. Moreover, though, under California law, the charging document does not necessarily con- control the conviction. Yeah, but you're, you're saying, then, that despite the fact that the, the, uh, the indictment in this case said he willfully, etc., did this, it would be open to California to prove that, in fact, he didn't do any of those things, but was merely an accessory after the fact. Yes. That's, that's your position. That's exactly. what California pleading law allows. Yes. Okay. Do you have a, a case on that? Uh, yes. Uh, People v. West and People v. Toro. That's West and Toro. Uh, yeah, W-E-S-T and People v. Toro. There's also the case of Sandoval, which is also cited uh, in our brief. Does any of those cases squarely hold that he could be convicted of being an accessory uh, after the fact on a general indictment like this? Uh, no, none of them do. They talk about the general principle under California law about that a charging document does not necessarily control the ultimate conviction and sets forth the test that needs to be applied. But on this question — Well, the government — it's not only that. The government has authority going the other way. Um, People versus Prado, in the absence of a statute, an accessory after the fact must be indicted and convicted as such. We look at this information, it's clear that he's not being indicted as an accessory after the fact. Well, we think People v. Prado supports our view, which is a statute specifically that allows for accessory liability on its face. So therefore, a person need not be charged under the different accessory statute. However, to the extent that this Court finds the charging documents or the ultimate conviction ambiguous, which um, it sounds like some members of the Court may believe it, it is, This is a question of California law as a a first point. But moreover, the question here is whether the government has met its burden under Taylor and Shepard. And under Taylor and Shepard, the inquiry is whether it can necessarily be shown that someone was convicted of a generic definition. And here, given the ambiguity under California law, it can't be said that. What do we do about that? Now, you have no interest in answering my question. But I'll say what the question is. 
It seems to me under the law, here's what I do, and I'm a good defense lawyer, as you are at this. I simply look at the statute, and I imagine some very weird case that the statute could cover where the person wouldn't have the right intent or it wouldn't be theft or it'd be some odd thing. There's no possibility in the world that applied to my client. But most charges are simply stated in the wording of the statute. And most judgments simply say guilty. So I say, see, you see, it's theoretically possible. And now when you decide what really happened, court, you're supposed to look only to the charging documents and the judgment. And you can't say it didn't. So the whole congressional scheme is basically put to the side. Now, what's the answer to that problem insofar as you want to answer it? Of course, I'd be happy to. I don't think it puts the whole scheme aside. Remember, the, the government gets two bites of the apple here. They get a first bite on the categoric approach, where all they need to show is that all the elements are within the generic definition of the crime. We'd be dealing with a different case if the person was charged under the penal code, which doesn't require uh, — which requires intent to steal and which does not uh, cover accessories after the fact. So the government gets a free pass on round one. On round two, on the modified categorical approach, as we're discussing here, the government gets a second chance to, based on actual documents in the record, to establish whether there's enough there. Here the government relies on the charging document and an abstract of judgment, but the government does not put in a plea colloquy. It does not put in um, a plea allocution. It does not put in any other documents that would establish under Shepard that someone was necessarily convicted of the crime. So what the government here is asking to be relieved of its burden of proof, which it has in this case. I would like to note that on the — The charging document you acknowledge would suffice if it indeed is California law that in order to convict as an accessory, you have to charge it as an accessory. You would acknowledge that — Yes, I would acknowledge that the charging document unto itself but not taking into account that the fact that the charging document and the conviction need not match. I would note, though, that the Court need not go to the modified categorical approach, and I would say should not. This is something that the Board, the agency, has been able to deal with for 60 years or so, dealing with the actual documents, trying to figure out whether a particular charging document is or is not enough. In Shepard itself, which actually dealt with the question of which documents could or could not be considered. The Court did not go further and look at the next step um, and decide whether those particular documents uh, did or did not meet the definition in that case. I'd also like to note to the extent that this Court finds California charging law ambiguous or hard to understand, under the principle of Jet v. Dallas Independent School District, the circuit courts are in a better position to consider a matter of California state law in the first instance. So our accessory argument is that the Court should decide the categorical approach alone on the accessory after the fact ground and remand to the agency for consideration of the, under the modified approach. I'd like to also stress that if the Court were to affirm on that ground, it would be a very narrow holding. There's only two other statutes in California that expressly include accessories after the fact. California's car theft statute does not include accessories after the fact. In order to agree with you on the accessory point, though, don't we have to decide two disputed issues of California law, whether accessory here in this statute means accessory after the fact, 
and whether, uh, if somebody is charged under that statute as an accessory, that has to be alleged specifically in the indictment, or whether it's just sufficient to charge the person with the offense. Um, the court would only need to decide that first question, not the second question. The first question is, what is the meaning of accessory under California law? That is sufficiently clear in our view that the court need not send it back to the Court of Appeals. The second question under the modified approach is outside uh, the, the core of what this case is about, and we suggest that that should be remanded to the Ninth Circuit or the agency. Has, has anyone ever been prosecuted as an accessory after the fact to joyriding? I do not know one way or the other, uh, Your Honor. But I would also note that we don't know whether there, anyone's been prosecuted under 10851 on that ground. We also don't know whether someone has been prosecuted under Section 32, which is the accessory after the fact provision, more generally on that ground. But if, if no one's ever been prosecuted as an accessory after the fact, the joyriding, we'd really have to go out on a limb to construe this charging document, which charges him as a principal, as actually meaning to charge him as an accessory after the fact, wouldn't we? Not necessarily, because what we have is a statutory provision that clearly covers accessories after the fact. We do not have an example of someone who was charged under 10851, but there are many reasons why that may not show up, partly because the charging documents don't need to so provide, in our view. So figuring out who was and who was not an accessory after the fact or a principal under 10851 is not uh, so easy to distill. Have you been able to think of any example where a person could have been convicted of this statute under the statute, but what he'd actually been was some kind of accessory to another person who was committing another crime, and the natural and probable consequence was that that other person would violate this statute? Can so, you give an example? Have you been able to think of one? Sure. Uh, so you're switching to the natural and probable yeah, yeah. consequences. Yeah. Yes, and I um, thank you for that mm -hmm. question. Uh, someone who, say, could uh, aid in a bet or have the intent to aid in a bet uh, purchasing alcohol for a minor. The natural and probable consequence of that could be joyriding. I would also like to, turning to the question of the natural and probable consequences doctrine, the government is incorrect when it states that the majority view accepts the natural and probable consequences. Are there cases that hold that the natural and probable consequences of, of purchasing alcohol for a minor could be joyriding? We have not found a case on that. However, or anything else that somebody might do after getting intoxicated. Partying, maybe. I would understand. I don't know about joyriding. The natural and probable consequences, our natural and probable consequences theory, cuts across a, a wide variety of crimes, as the government points out. So it would also cover the different uh, provisions under the INA, such as burglary, uh, theft, uh, and, and other provisions as well. The government, though, is incorrect in stating that the natural and probable consequences is a majority view. Even in its brief, the government only sets forth 22 states that it says apply that analysis. Those 22 states that the government cites, many of them do not support the proposition that it is a majority view or even applied in those, in those states. For example, just to give just a couple of examples, the government cites Missouri as a, as a state that applies the natural and probable consequence doctrine. However, 
In Missouri, in the very case cited by the government, People v. Evans, the Court rejects the use of the natural and probable consequences doctrine and says, quote, the use of the natural and probable consequences doctrine with error as a matter of law. The same is true, and that's on the same page the government cites. The same is true with respect to Maryland, where the same footnote that the government cites rejects the natural and probable consequences doctrine in favor of an error theory. It's also true that in Idaho, Louisiana, Georgia, and Texas also do not apply the natural and probable consequences doctrine. So what the government here is seeking to hold someone guilty of a theft offense as an aggravated felony without the requisite mens rea and something that's a minority view uh, of the states. Just to put this into context, under the natural and probable consequences doctrine, it is if California passed a statute saying that in some cases someone can be guilty of burglary without the mens rea of burglary, or saying that one can be guilty of theft without the mens rea of theft. Your, your argument isn't limited to theft offenses, correct? That would cut across all of the areas in which the federal law refers, uh, in which a Taylor analysis would apply. Yes, it would. So it would, it would not necessarily apply to the non-Taylor uh, provisions, such as the one that's So it would, mean, it would mean we could not rely on the categorical approach in almost any of those cases? As for, on the first step, yes, yes, as the categorical approach, it does mean that, Your Honor. Well, well what's an example of, of where you, you're, you're held uh, guilty on the ground that you aided and abetted natural and probable somebody, and he did X, and the natural and probable consequence was Y? Because, after all, you you are properly held guilty when you do an act and a known consequence is why. So what, what, what's an example? Sure, I'd be happy to give a number of examples. In one would be good enough. If you, intend, Best one. if you intend to aid and abet robbery, so you have the intention to aid and abet robbery, you can be held liable for an unintended rape of another. If you aid and abet, have that's you, a known and probable consequence. That's a that's a probable consequence. Yes, under California. Well, then maybe the problem is that they don't define natural and probable consequence properly. Well, this is how it's applied under California law. To give another example. Wait, that, that, that's that's a real case. That's a real case, and I'll give you the site. It's People v. Vang, 2002, Westlaw 192720. There's another case cited in our brief, aid and abet robbery. Natural probable consequence, sex offenses, that's the people of the Nguyen case. Another example, a person who has the intention to aid and abet battery, beating someone up, can be held guilty for an unintended robbery. And to show how stark this is, this is, in California, it's broader than even the common law. Sounds like the doctrine of unnatural improbable consequence. <laughs> you're, 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 you're asking us to say that, uh, that not only do the states have to have the same rule, but they have to interpret the rule the same way. This, this would make the uh, application of the categorical approach impossible. You, you, you'd have to look not only to the, to the expression of the rule of law by the state courts, but to its application by the state courts in every jurisdiction. I mean, that, that, that just makes the whole enterprise infeasible, it seems to me. What the Taylor analysis looks to is what's in the heartland of a certain crime, and here what's in the heartland of aiding and abetting. And what we have here 
is an aberrant doctrine of California law that is outside the mainstream, which holds people guilty. What's aberrant is the California interpretation of the standard doctrine that is used in many states, which is you intend the natural and probable consequences of what you do. And, And if California has some California courts have come up with weird notions of that, I don't know that that destroys the uniformity among the states. Just to, to briefly respond, the, the, the rule that you state is that one intends the natural and probable consequences of one's own act. We do not dispute this rule. The question is, as applied to aiding and abetting liability, and California is one of a handful of states that applies the natural and probable consequences doctrine to aiding and abetting liability, which has these uh, novel and aberrant uh, consequences of pe- holding people liable, even if they don't have the, n- the requisite mens rea for defense. Thank, Thank you, Mr. Mead. Uh, Mr. Himmelfarb, you have four minutes remaining. Would, would it be completely inconsistent with Taylor versus United States for us to say that when there is a, a novel or an unusual theory of potential liability, such as proposed by the respondent, which would exonerate him from the operation of this statute, that he has the burden to show that that's what happened? Well, we think would, any ta- Would Taylor allow us to do that sort of burden shifting? Well, ultimately, Justice Kennedy, we don't think that Taylor controls on the question of what Congress's intent was under the INA. Ultimately, Taylor was a question about Congress's intent in enacting the, Agri- the Armed Career Criminal Act, and every aspect of that decision was tied in some way to Congress's intent there. We think Congress's intent in enacting the aggravated felony provision of the INA has to be that it didn't intend that you would have these highly arcane comparisons of some general definition of aiding and abetting, which either would or wouldn't include the infinite varieties of formulations of aiding and abetting. And so your general rule to accomplish your objective would be? It's the one I suggested when I was up here earlier, which is a holding by this Court that Congress intended to include aiding and abetting liability in the aggravated felony provision and it intended to cover whatever formulations were extant in 1988 when the provision was enacted. The Court can leave open the possibility that if in some future case some jurisdiction were to enact an extraordinarily far-reaching, theretofore unheard of formulation, for example, anybody who intentionally insists, assists, without regard to whether the person even knew about the principal's criminal conduct, could be held liable as an aider and abetter. In that circumstance, it might well be the case that the state, by adopting such a far-reaching theory of aiding and abetting, would in effect forfeit the right to have any of the substantive provisions in its criminal code treated as aggravated felonies unless the government in the immigration case could somehow prove that the alien wasn't convicted as an aider and abetter. The the, the problem, I guess, that I have with the argument is that the, the theory of Taylor, and, and we carried it forward in, in Shepard, uh, was that there is a concept of a generic offense. And when, when aiding and abetting liability is extended in the natural and probable consequences theory, we face the fact that uh, regardless of what the actual count is, even on your count, there, there isn't even a majority of states that do it. 
And I have difficulty seeing how that can therefore form an element of a generic offense when, when it is, or a generic concept of the offense, when it is a minority rule. Well, even under our fallback provision, Justice Souter, under which you would have to come up with some general definition of aiding and abetting and then make a comparison with the law of aiding and abetting in the jurisdiction of conviction. And even if it's, you know, 2020 or 1818 among the states on this particular wrinkle in the law of aiding and abetting, we think it's frankly dispositive in this case that is, it is the federal rule. And my friend, Mr. Meade, has not disputed that. And we think it's just inconceivable that Congress would have intended that in a federal criminal case, if you're charged with murder, you can be convicted under a natural and probable consequences theory such that you could conceivably spend life in prison the same way a principal would, and yet you would not be subject to the same immigration consequences as somebody convicted of the principal offense of murder, and indeed that you wouldn't even be able, the government wouldn't be able to. Then why didn't we simply take the, the, the closest federal definition as being the touchstone? Well, I th- in Taylor, yeah. I think that one of the problems in Taylor was that there really is no federal definition of burglary. That's part of it. The other part of it is, to some extent, the Court did rely on a federal definition in Taylor. The initial version, the original version of the ACA statute, defined burglary, and it defined it in the generic way, which was broader than the common law rule. Okay, but you were Taylor an uh, immigration case? No, it wasn't. It was a criminal case, no. Justice Scalia. But, but you're, in effect, you're, you would say that the rule should be, or the, the modified Taylor rule for application here should be, uh, that it's either got to fall within the concept of the federal offense, or in default of there being a comparable federal offense, a generic offense defined by reference to, to state practice. May I answer the question? Mm-hmm. Our primary submission is that in the context of aiding and abetting, there shouldn't be any generic de- definition beyond what the states apply, whatever the formulation. Our fallback position is essentially what you've just described, and we think we should prevail under it because we think we have the federal rule we think we have the majority rule in the states, and we have the common law rule as well. Thank you, Mr. Himmelfarb. The case is submitted.